0: Visit carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Jane Brown, in for Libby's Nimer. Many Canadians do not have access to quality end-of-life care. In fact, a new report from the Canadian Cancer Society says the country's palliative care system is in critical condition. Today we'll hear from Gabriel Miller, Director of Public Issues at the Canadian Cancer Society. Plus, people often extol the virtues of music as a healing power, but it turns out there can be right and wrong ways to use music to help someone who's living with dementia or another debilitating cognitive disease. Chrissy Pearson is a music therapist at Baycrest. She'll tell us how to safely and effectively use music to heal. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The concerns over quality elder care keep growing. Three care workers have admitted to committing assault in a nursing home in England. The three women, ranging in age from 33 to 47, all worked at the old deanery care home in Essex. The charges against the care workers stemmed from a BBC TV program which captured undercover footage of an elderly woman with dementia being goaded and slapped. The local police started an investigation after viewing the footage. Now the workers have all pled guilty and will be sentenced in February. Next time you or someone you know buys a shiny brand new sports car, it can't be blamed on a midlife crisis. It turns out there's no such thing. A University of Alberta study published in Developmental Psychology surveyed the same 1,500 people for up to 25 years. It found they were happier in their early 40s than when they were 18. The study also found happiness was higher in years when participants were married and in better health. The study contradicts previous research that suggests happiness declines between the teens and 40s. This Tuesday, Agnes Jeliznik celebrated her 102nd birthday by doing what she does best, teaching. The centenarian is America's oldest teacher, and she loves her day job. She teaches sewing and cooking at the Sundance School in North Plainfield, New Jersey. Jeliznik is affectionately referred to as Granny by her pre-kindergarten through fifth grade students and has no plans to retire anytime soon. This week, we suffered a number of great losses in the entertainment industry. After a very private 18-month battle with liver cancer, David Bowie, the avant-garde rock star, passed away at the age of 69. British actor Alan Rickman, who had a long career on both stage and screen but was perhaps best known for his role as Professor Snape in the Harry Potter film series, also lost his battle with cancer at the age of 69. And here in Canada, we're mourning the loss of René Angélil, the Québécois music mogul who managed his wife Céline Dion during her rise to fame. He died of throat cancer at 73. I'm Jane Brown, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadians who are living with a terminal illness may not be receiving appropriate palliative care because of where they live. A report from the Canadian Cancer Society says the country's palliative care system is in critical condition and federal and provincial governments need to guarantee its access in legislation. Gabriel Miller is the director of public issues for the Canadian Cancer Society. He joins me on the line. Gabriel, tell us first of all about the history of palliative care in Canada.
2: Palliative care is a relatively new area of specialization that's really emerged in the last few decades and has been developed primarily to meet the needs of cancer patients. Cancer is the leading cause of death in Canada. And of course, as we've done a better job of diagnosing cancer and treating cancer, one of the things that's happened is that people's uh, survival with the disease, including the period leading up to end of life, has been extended. And so uh, there's been a growing need to find ways to make sure that while people are, are grappling with the disease themselves, we're protecting their quality of life. And that's really what palliative care is all about. It's about protecting a patient's quality of life.
1: And when does palliative care come into the treatment process? When when the patient knows that they are terminal or even later than that?
2: All of the evidence suggests that really palliative care should be part of a patient's treatment and care right from the beginning of a critical illness diagnosis because it's at that point that you need to start informing the patient about the experiences that may lay ahead about the choices that are going to have to be made in terms of um, milestones where they'll need to decide do i continue with treatment or do i focus on care and also developing an advanced care plan so that if they do end up in an end-of-life situation uh, they've made the decisions and their family is involved so that that experience frankly, protects their values and their wishes as much as possible.
1: Now, the Canadian Cancer Society says that we have a patchwork of palliative care across the country. What does that look like and what what does that mean?
2: What it looks like when you step back is a maze of pretty expensive, Uh, policies and programs across the country that can vary not just from one province to the next, but really from one community to the next. And so there are examples uh, and numerous examples throughout the country of regions where the teams of palliative care experts uh, have been able to, to be created and care has been able to be provided reliably outside of hospital settings and uh, most citizens uh, can feel pretty confident that they'll be able to get those services when they need them. But then there are all sorts of other parts of the country where not only are the services not there, but we don't even have reliable data of what services people are able to access.
1: There are some wonderful facilities across the country. Uh, I have firsthand experience with Lissard House in Cambridge. That's where my mother died and spent the last few days of her life. But there are very few of these centers. I mean, and, and the number of patients they can take is quite limited.
2: You're absolutely right. And, and we, need, we need to see palliative care as an essential uh, medical service that needs to be provided in a variety of ways, depending on the situation of the patient. There are going to be some people whose situation is so complex that they may need to receive palliative care in a hospital. There'll be more who need to be in the kind of facility, I think, that you're describing that that your mom benefited from. And then there'll be many thousands of people who, in fact, will be able to spend almost, you know, all of the final weeks of their life at home if if. Uh, medical experts are available mm-hmm. to provide advice and, and occasionally visit if necessary. And if you have a team of people who can provide personal support and help take some of the burden off family members. But it's it's stories like your mom's that we need to see as the goal uh, to achieve for the entire country.
1: What you don't want to see happen and what the Canadian Cancer Society report says is that you have people who are near end of life coming into intensive care units and emergency and hospitals where they're not equipped to treat these people.
2: Absolutely. These are the most scarce moments that that they'll ever have in their lives and that are so valuable to them to be able to spend in a way that's meaningful to them and their loved ones. But the other point here is, There's nowhere that's more expensive to care for someone in the final couple weeks of life than in an emergency room or an intensive care unit. And the better job we do of providing care where people actually want it and need it, uh, the better job we're going to do relieving the strain on, on our hospitals.
1: The Canadian Cancer Society is hopeful the government will address this issue when the federal health minister meets with her provincial and territorial counterparts in Vancouver later this month. What does the legislation look like? What should it look like so that we have an improved and ultimately a very good palliative care system nationwide?
2: Well, it starts with a commitment to guarantee the right to palliative care to all Canadians. And that might sound a little bit like um, hot air, But what we found in this country is when medical rights are clearly stated in in legislation, then the system will organize itself around that to provide it. Beyond that, practically, we need to expand home care. We need better financial support for family caregivers so that they can do their part in all of this. And we're going to need to do more training and support for health care providers themselves.
1: And is there an indication the health ministers will respond to the Canadian Cancer Society's report?
2: We've had a very encouraging response from the new federal minister of health, Jane Philpott. She herself is a physician and she has said now publicly a couple of times, There is clearly a major issue here and that the country needs to do better. And we think that because of the attention around end-of-life issues right now, um, our governments will know that, frankly, Canadians' eyes are on them and that if they're not going to do something about this now, people are going to wonder whether they ever will.
1: Gabriel, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Gabriel Miller is the Director of Public Issues for the Canadian Cancer Society. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we'll talk about the power of music, how it can be used to remember, comfort, and even help heal people living with Alzheimer's and dementia.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca.
1: You've likely heard in recent years that when people with dementia or Alzheimer's listen to music, it can calm them down and even improve cognitive functions. But connecting a cognitively frail loved one to their favorite songs requires thoughtful planning to ensure it's doing good rather than harm. Chrissy Pearson is an accredited music therapist with Baycrest Health Sciences and the Music Therapy Center. She joins me in studio. Chrissy, you've led a project to create an educational guide on how to use music listening devices for people with dementia or Alzheimer's.
3: So the education guide is really designed for caregivers, um, for family members, and really for for aging people themselves to use in order to use music more effectively so that they get the most out of a listening experience. And that can be very therapeutic. Um, My background is music therapy, so specifically working with people on therapeutic goals, but I'm sort of using that knowledge in a way to help people use music in effective ways that um, that can really benefit them the most.
1: What is it about music? that can help somebody who's living with dementia or a cognitive issue of some sort?
3: I think the easiest way to explain it is that music really activates areas of the brain that are all connected and all working together. Um, And that's just listening to music. When you're actively engaged in music, whether it's singing or tapping your toes or moving and dancing— you know, then even more parts of your brain are active and working together. So for someone who has an impairment or something has um, been damaged or something is becoming more and more impaired, there, chances are there are parts of the brain that are still uh, responding to music.
1: Is there any research that shows music can reverse some of the damage uh,
3: done by the disease? I don't think there's there's anything that's telling us it can reverse. But what it does show us is that there are ways for the brain to create new pathways. So neuroplasticity and music are very much related. A great example of that would be someone who's had a stroke and maybe has lost the ability to speak and communicate Um You know, music therapy specifically, not just listening to music, but working with a music therapist can often help to find a new pathway for the person to begin to communicate verbally again. Often singing comes and then the the talking comes. But specifically with dementia and Alzheimer's where, you know, really it's a degenerative thing that's going to happen slowly over time, most of the time, um, I think the focus really is on preserving and uh, helping things to slow down a bit and I think that's really going back to the guidelines we've created for outside of the music therapy context, people who want to use music with their loved ones these are some tools that might help them to connect with their their loved ones through music in ways that um, are more effective than just sticking a song on and not knowing right. when to do it or what to do with so it. So
1: that's maybe more the wrong way to do it. Let's really focus in on the right way sure. to have music help sure. people who are living with Alzheimer's.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say there's a right or wrong way, but let's say this is more helpful okay. or might might be a better way to, to engage in music with someone with Alzheimer's or any kind of dementia. Um, I think maybe the first thing to point out is that it's not always the best time to listen to music. So, for example, um, someone with a high degree of cognitive impairment, it's hard to concentrate on more than one thing at once. So, you know, if you're going for a walk with someone, that might not be the best time to be putting headphones on someone to listen to music. You're kind of perhaps shutting them off from the experience of going for the walk and engaging in what's happening around them. So it should be the singular activity. In most cases, and I would say especially with people who have more impairment, I think the focus really should be on I'm going to listen to music with you right now. And that's what we're going to do.
1: In terms of how the music is listened to, you Mm -hmm. mentioned headphones, earbuds, or on a speaker in the room. Right. Is that individually dependent or is there a better way of those three to listen to the music?
3: Right. We really advocate for not using headphones at all and for making it an interactive music experience. Certainly there may be situations where maybe headphones are appropriate when supervised, and I would say more often than not, I would choose to go with the speakers and to listen to the music with the person.
1: Many of us do have family members, loved ones who have some form of cognitive Mm -hmm. impairment. Uh, This education guide would be helpful for all of us
3: in that case. Through the Baycrest website, is that how we get a hold of it? Absolutely, yeah. It's on the Baycrest website. um, And it's actually, we're in the process of translating it. So it'll be available in French as well. The Canadian Alzheimer's Society, um, after we have it translated, they're going to look at whether that's a resource They can also provide for the people that they uh, work with. The Canadian Association for Music Therapy has endorsed it as well. So they'll be providing it on their website. Um, So it's really exciting. Wonderful guidance. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so
1: much. Chrissy Pearson is an accredited music therapist with Baycrest Health Sciences and the Music Therapy Center. She created the Education Guide for Music and Alzheimer's, which was partially funded by Margaret Nightingale, a longtime Baycrest donor. I'm Jane Brown. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. This week, the world was shocked by the sudden passing of David Bowie. We'll pay tribute to the musical revolutionary right after this.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca.
1: Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Jane Brown, in for Libby Snymer. It's time for the International Arts Book. tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Bob Comsick.
4: The late David Bowie's abstract off-Broadway musical Lazarus continues its run at the New York Theatre Workshop until January 20th, featuring lead actor Michael C. Hall singing from Bowie's new album. The show will then move to London, completing one of Bowie's goals to write and stage a musical on the West End. In La Jolla, California, the Bellows Gallery is offering an exhibit of vintage photographs from the days when X-ray technology was in its infancy. The chief radiologist at an L.A. hospital was inspired to record numerous varieties of flowers using the X-ray process back in the 1920s, resulting in some of the most striking and unique floral images in the history of photography. Over in England, the theater experience at the Bristol Old Vic now includes refurbished sound effects used 250 years ago. Rocks are rolled down channels in the roof, recreating the sound of thunder. Hand crank machines are used to create the sound of wind and rain. Both are used in the current production of Sleeping Beauty. And in Paris, dissident Chinese artist Ai Weiwei's Child's Play is on display at the upscale Parisian store Beaumarchais and features huge bamboo structures, 3D dragons, and kites. I'm Bob Komsik with the International Arts Datebook.
1: This past week started with a shock, the sudden passing of David Bowie, one of the most influential and iconic musicians of the Zoomer generation. His music career started in the 1960s. His first album, self-titled David Bowie, was released in 1967. His last album, Black Star, came out just last week on January 8th, his 69th birthday, and just two days before he died. In between, he wrote, recorded, and performed countless hit songs, songs like Space Oddity, Ziggy Stardust, Heroes, Rebel Rebel, Changes, and Young Americans, just to name a few. Along with his music, David Bowie was well known for his various stage personas and the artistic, flamboyant costumes that went with them. Out of the spotlight, he valued his privacy. In fact, many of his closest friends had no idea he was living with liver cancer for the past year and a half. Sadly, it took his life on January 10th. Right now, we'll play one of Bowie's biggest hits, And a favorite of ours here on Zoomer Radio, Changes.
0: Still don't know what I was waiting for.
1: That was David Bowie's hit song, Changes. The world was shocked by his death at the start of the week. He passed away after a very private 18-month battle with liver cancer. David Bowie was 69. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Jane Brown, filling in for Libby's Nymer. Tune in next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer, Produced by Paul Thomas.
1: This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio.